Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today we got a great show in store for you. We have Jacob Sklenner back on the line for a Wisconsin update. Jacob is in the midst of chasing down a giant public land marsh buck, so we take a deep dive into his thought process and mentality at this point. I think there's a ton to take away from today's episode, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Also, Latitude's Rebel and X-Wing saddle platforms are back in stock, so if you're looking to pick up a platform or any other gear for season, head over to LatitudeOutdoors.com, pick out what you need. You can use the discount code INSESSION to save you 20% off that order. That's one word, INSESSION. You can find that in the description of this podcast as well. Also, if you haven't checked out Latitude Outdoors on YouTube, go check that out. We have the Grit Series, which is all of the hunts from the team from last year that launches every other week as well as hunt recaps that take those individual hunts and do tactic breakdowns to see how they got on the deer that they saw. So I think that the grit is an absolutely awesome series and the hunt recaps are very informative. I know that I've personally learned a ton, so I think you guys will enjoy it. Thank you once again for listening to today's show. Let's get right into it. Today we have repeat guest on once again, Jacob Sklenner. Thanks for hopping on, man. Yeah, I'm feeling awfully reckless today because I'm not hunting. <laughs> so <laughs> It, uh, I'm in a hurry up and wait kind of mentality right now. <laughs> I get that. I get that for sure, man. It's, uh, it's five o'clock right now, fourth day of season for us. I know your season's been open for a couple of weeks, but we were both not going hunting today and we're like, Hey, let's just knock out a podcast really quick since we're not going to go chase our bucks around. Uh, we're both dealing with the same stuff. It's been a little bit of a heat wave. It's been some East winds, some odd winds, which do we prepare for? Yes, in some way, shape, or form, but I would say that you're a lot like me, and the majority of my scouting goes for the predominant prevailing winds. So when I get in these odd situations, it's more about, for me, it's about being creative. I want to try to be creative and not ruin my hunts for when I have the correct winds, if that makes sense. So so let's jump into Wisconsin, man. I know that you spent some time in Nebraska, but we're going to talk about that on a podcast at a later date just to you know talk to everybody about an out-of-state approach on a week-long hunt. So let's get into Wisconsin. So what's going through your head right now? Uh, a lot of questions, honestly. I did a lot of scouting. Uh, I scouted a lot of different properties. I got a lot of good bucks, some really nice ones. Um, and then on the 28th, I just had one show up in an area that wasn't expecting it. That was a monster, like like biggest deer I've ever chased by by, by a long shot. And um, yeah, I'm uh, I've been trying to hunt them down. It's it's really tough. It's a complete mentality change from what I normally do. What I normally do is I hunt areas and then specific deer in those areas. I time when those deer are going to be in those areas, and I I fit conditions to places and I hunt those places as much as possible on the most effective conditions but now it's hey i got i can't hunt the cold front this weekend so i've got limited period of time i know he's on oaks and i need to go after him and it is nerve-wracking to say the least but it's a freaking blast to go out there knowing that you're on the tail of a giant yeah it, it definitely isn't the thing that i picked up on right away there and i could be totally wrong but in the past the thing that i've done that i had to break like let's say you know, five-ish years ago, maybe a little bit, a little bit before then, but I, I came down from New York and in New York, a big mature buck is, you know, we've talked about it a hundred times, could be 115 inches, could be 125 inches. That was, you know, pretty much the class of buck that I was chasing. So coming to Ohio, I get, uh, I get some deer on camera down here and they're giants, they're Boone and Crockett caliber deer. And the thing that goes through my head immediately is all my tactics that I build up, my aggressive mindset, everything else, I get that picture of that big one. And what I did, it was like, I, all I said to myself was like, ooh. And that ooh was like me kind of caving in my chest and, you know, the shoulders roll forward. And I kind of, 
I lose that aggressiveness. It's like it's like you're gonna fight a, a big guy that was you know somebody was was road raging with you, and you're like I'm gonna beat this guy up, and then he gets out of his car and he's eight feet tall, and you're like, wow, <laughs> maybe I'm not gonna beat this guy up, and so I don't know if I sense a little bit of that going on there. Maybe maybe I do, um, and I don't I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, but I do think that you you know you have success with a mindset and with a certain amount of aggressiveness in the past, basically talking about myself here. And then when you finally get after that, like that mega, it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to screw it up. You know, you almost immediately revert to that. Hey, I don't want to screw this up mentality. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit onto that. I got to be honest, like you're you're partially right. But I have found that the approach I'm taking and the reasoning I'm applying to it, like the information I'm receiving, and we'll get into this, but the information I'm receiving from this deer, from camera, sign, et cetera, I've found that just the way I break down and analyze area and the way I involve reasoning, not beyond like, I'm not jumping to giant conclusions here, but the way I reason, um, I have a lot of confidence in that because I've because I've been bouncing from area to area, deer to deer, I haven't been looking at what one deer does. I don't have one data point. I have a lot of different data points. So like, I understand what, you know, obviously not this caliber, you know, if you were to just measure it in inches, but this age class, like I have experience with many, many different deer and how they behave, how they react to pressure. Unfortunately, it's not in this terrain because it's my first year hunting marshes, but I actually have a pretty good amount of confidence in the way I'm approaching it, but I have fear in failure. And and that's what I'm kind of breaking myself of bit by bit here is I'm not afraid of, of failing. You know, if I don't kill this deer, it's whatever. But I have a fear of spending my time believing a theory that's not true. And so like right now I'm getting actually, there's a big eight that you and I talked about that I've been chasing. And I actually watched the subordinate buck that he was beating up, you know, stand up from his bed and um, walk straight to me. And, and I knew that eight was in the area. And now I have him coming in uh, last three nights in a row working a scrape. And I know exactly where he's coming from. And he's like, just this really nice, large mass eight that I would be so thrilled to shoot any other year. And it's like, man, I put all this time into like all these other bucks and all these other properties. And I'm just kind of like waving them goodbye. Like I, and at the same time, I'm just in love with this challenge. Like, you know, it literally is a wrestling match. It's me and him one-on-one, you know, equal grounds. I'm battling, you know, beating everyone else that may have opportunities at this deer. And, um, I'm just like, I'm so fired up about it. Um, I I don't want to rant too much on it, but I'm sure we'll get into some details of how my mentality has changed and uh, how this gets me just so, so damn excited to be chasing a deer like this. Yeah. So let's jump into that a little bit. Let's jump into, you know, going from a guy that's, like you said, you've had multiple deer to chase and you could, based on conditions, rotate those areas and those deer in the past to saying, hey, I'm going to chase this one specific deer. What happens there from a, from a mentality standpoint with your tactics? Like what's your thought process? So normally what I do is um, I would ensure I'm chasing them on the absolute perfect conditions. I would disregard that pressure might bump them because, you know, that's something I can't control. I might move to monitor pressure on the outside of his core area. And um, I might start taking cameras, shifting them and trying to get on the very, very outside of his core area so I can monitor people pressure if he's moving in and out of it. And, and normally I would start taking a very tactical patient, like you were saying, kind of a patient approach where I'm making my strikes very focused and on the perfect situations. But this deer is on oaks. He was in those oaks 
before they started dropping. So I know his core areas there and around it. According to my sign, I know the four kind of bedding areas that he rotates, four specific beds, I should say. It's not even an area. I know the four beds that he most wants to stay in. I know the travel directions from those beds. I, I, I know I have been correct about this because I've tracked him coming from those areas. And so the problem I'm facing is we got a cold front coming Friday, Saturday, Sunday here, and that's right on the tail end of the oak drop for us. And I can't hunt Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I need to get it done this week, in my opinion. And where he shifts, I have absolutely no historical data on where this is. And the problem is, I can't get too specific here, but I'm not able to, let's just say there's a property border um, that I can't cross that he very well might shift to. And I don't have historical data on where these bucks shift to or how they even do that in a marsh per se. I have theories, but you know me, I, like, I don't just trust what someone else might say or preach or or I might not just like go with this theory. I'm going to, you know, certify it with, through observation or failure or something like that. I would much rather have my personal experience in my area with the exact pressure and exact deer that I'm chasing. And so while I do want to sit back and wait for the right conditions, I'm taking an extremely aggressive approach at this deer because I know that if he's going to be in the area I'm hunting him right now, it's going to be during this period. And if I don't kill him during this period, I'm leaving a lot of stuff up to chance. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm kind of tactically rotating between areas. I'm going between those four areas and the way that it sets up, there's no way to observe it from a distance. Otherwise I'd be, you know, I'd sacrifice a day and do that. But I'm rotating between those areas. I'm specifically analyzing the sign and how that sign changes as I go. And so as of now, I've done a complete lap of those four areas. I've just hit the fourth one yesterday. And so the challenges I'm facing is I'm pretty certain I bumped him one time. I'm pretty certain I've been on him, but I know I've applied pressure to him. And I know that he's aware that I'm there because he's I've seen him track me out with his tracks in mine. And so the thing that's uncertainty in my mind is is how he's adjusting to that. So yeah, I have a bit of I have a bit of that doubt in, you know, is he still there? But I also know that if I'm going to kill him, I have to pursue him in these areas now, which is much more aggressive than I'd like to be, but it's kind of just the reality of the situation. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. It calls for an aggressive mindset because you have the limited time. And then, you know, the, the thing in my head too, is the same thing that I'm dealing with. It's like, are conditions perfect right now? No, they're not. But when that cold front hits Saturday on the weekend, I'm not the only person thinking about a cold front and I'm not the only people that know about this deer. And so the longer that it takes for me to kill this thing, the more that the more pressure that's going to be induced into that area, somebody could kill the deer. You know, somebody yeah. could absolutely kill that deer or he could completely change what he's doing. So I feel the exact same way in the back of my head. That's what's going on. I know in hill country, for me at least, when I have an area that I can work with, and I don't have to worry about like property borders. The thing that I really like to do is as soon as I find that mega that I really want to go after, like as soon as I find him, bam, I broadcast a network of cameras out on all the adjacent ridges. Within, I would say that I have cameras on pretty much every spur ridge and bowl and everything within a mile and a half of this deer's core area. And the reason I do that, I don't even really check all of them before season, but the reason that I do that is just so if he does shift and he slips by me, I can start making a rotation and looking for hot yeah. sign and then checking those cameras on the fly. And I picked deer back up doing that before. I just don't want to get, yeah. you know, this deer last year fooled me good. He pushed out of an area. I, I really pushed him out of the area late season because I was hunting him and he vacated and I had to go find him again. And he did, it didn't make any sense what he was doing. Uh, this deer that I'm after loves bedding windward. He is a just, he beds on windward ridges, windward bowls, the majority of the time. And so 
you know, last year that really threw me for a loop. But yeah, the thing that I try to do immediately is disperse that. And then I really like to spend a lot of time when it's not the correct conditions playing that game of going around checking the adjacent ridges or the adjacent features that set up similarly. And Mm -hmm. that's just one of the things that I do in my head. Uh, So, you know, for instance, here we've had east winds the last three days. Actually, today's the fourth day of east winds. So I've been basically hunting windward ridges. I don't want to hunt where I think the deer is or where I think he's going because I need a west to do that. I need to be on the other side. But I've been hunting up behind him higher in elevation on the main ridge where all these spur ridges jut out. And I've basically been hunting the like right off the point of the ridges, like right off on the steep sides or in the bowls, just looking for sign. So I'm going in, I'm looking for sign. I'm setting up in the morning with the wind in my face. Ideally, he's coming back from his food source, and I'm just trying to either kill him, making the loop to go bed down and J-hook in, or observe a deer or hear a deer or something that's going to tip me off to say, okay, I think he's over here. This is where he's spending more time. And in doing that, the thing that I've been doing as well is stacking these areas. So I have an area that I would really like to kill him. It makes the most sense. He spends a ton of time there. It's the most conducive for killing this buck coming down low at night, basically. So I've been hunting all the adjacent ridges and basically observation sitting these adjacent ridges, knowing that I'm leaving scent in there, knowing that I'm kind of pushing this deer into the area that I want him in. So what went through my head when you said that you've been cycling through these four spots, it makes a ton of sense, right? You could kill him in any of the four. What I normally do in those situations, if I have time, this is, you don't have time, but if I have time, what I like to do is say I have four spots while, and I don't have the correct conditions. I'll hunt three of those spots very aggressively, a couple times even. And then when I get the conditions on that fourth spot, I dive in on spot number four and it's a virgin sit. It's the first you're, time you're, in there. You're keeping one fresh. Yep. So I'm I'm trying to stack him in the fresh one without inducing that pressure. And then I'm trying to strike on him. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean that's that's spot on. Um, but you know, I have that accelerated timeline. So how I've been adjusting that approach. Um, and this this may seem foolish, but honestly, from the from the observation that I've had of the way that bucks in these marshes hold their core areas, from talking to friends that really know what they're doing out here, um, from seeing the way that the sign lays out, how concentrated the sign is in certain areas, particularly around a bed, you know, not around doe bedding, not downwind of doe bedding, like in a bed, early season sign. The way that that stuff is lining up, I know his primary areas and I know that when he shifts, it's going to be huge. But I also know that he wants to stay in this area. Another thing too is there's a lot of water in our area. And every single time I've got a picture of him, there has been no water or mud on his hooves. That is just like, that was like ding, ding, ding to me. Like that limited his range like crazy. And it was close enough because, you know, I'm setting cameras to catch him on transition lines. I'm not just throwing it open and feeding sign. Um, I would catch him with water on his legs. And I'm, I would catch him coming out of that marsh. And I'm seeing him work behind those cameras and then working around those points. So like I'm watching him go to certain beds on on my uh, SD cams, which is where I have most of my intel. Um, and I have one cell cam picture of him. But I'm watching him do that. And I know that he's not crossing major waterways. I know that he's not in an area where the cattails aren't dry, which unfortunately a lot of them are dry. But he's a big, heavy buck. Like he, He's going to sink in the mud and he's going to get some mud on his hooves that in 40 yards, he's not going to be able to clear. So unfortunately a lot of these pictures are at night but i know that he's an old hermit he's staying in a general area 
like these oaks are dropping and this is what he's focusing on for food because a lot of the stuff that's green is already starting to turn and he's going to be focusing on that green stuff that is remaining you know once these oaks dry up but they are just absolutely hammering oaks right now like unlike anything i've ever seen in hill country it's oh dude oaks in the marshes are the real freaking deal like it there's cracking them or something like the the deer just go crazy so one thing i'm doing that i said might be foolish um the way i took this four sit approach was i actually sat and i found this we've talked about this i've seen bucks stand up arranging them 66 yards from me they have headed down the trail that i expected them to straight to me and they did not reach me they like got up 30 minutes before light they did not cover more than 30 yards in daylight three different times i've watched the buck i was after or a mature buck stand up in his bed sub 80 yards walk to me and not make it to me in daylight even when he's pursuing oaks and so i know that i have to get way within that bubble right so the probability that he is not going to cross my scent trail and not going to figure out I was there when I'm just 40 yards away is pretty much zero. You know, I can't water access and just hop onto the edge. So he's eventually going to cross me, especially because he's roaming around oaks and, and moving. And so what I do is if I, I set myself up to watch this specific better bedding area, and if I don't see him get up, I walk in it. And that sounds crazy, but I only have, I have less than a week. I had, oh, you know, I'm, I've been pursuing it for five days now. So I have a week pretty much period to kill this deer from the time I discovered him. Um, and I discovered him on cell camera. That's how I have all this other intel about beforehand because I hadn't checked those set cams yet. But I got all this other intel and I'm actually hitting those bedding areas and I'm seeing if he was there. And so day one, I take my most confident strike. I get him on cell camera um, at 11.40 p.m. the day before. And so that afternoon, the day I woke up and got that picture, I took my best strike. You know, I went to, how did the sign lay up? How was he approaching this area? What direction of travel? Yada, yada, hooves are dry. Like, okay, I'm going to go to this area that looks like, you know, the best. And so I went there, I sat, it, it was, it's just a wall of cover. He can't exit from one direction. So I would watch him exit from the other direction. And I sat 50 yards from that. And it's a, because of how much cover there is around it. I'm hundred percent certain you didn't hear me. And I sat half a stick off the ground in a maple tree shooting over a branch completely covered and he did not exit that bedding area so I, I was like all right well he's going to walk down here like i see his tracks like he's gonna walk down here i'm gonna go check if he was in there so i go in there and boom like five or six giant fresh rubs his tracks everywhere his bed i'm like all right he was here this is probably one of his favorite spots but he's not going to be here anymore because I just walked in it. And and that's what I was counting on. And so the next day, I shift to the other direction that he may be um, betting in and traveling to. And so I'm like, all right, I'm limiting him to this area that has more sign than the other area I believe he's traveling. And so I hunted area two, not necessarily thinking that he was going to come there, but I knew I had just put pressure on area one. So it was more likely he traveled to area two than area one. And I thought, well, if he doesn't come to area two, my odds are only stacked on this third bed that I think he's coming from. And so he didn't come to area two that night. So I was like, all right, we're good. Like this is, this is now we're down to the last two of four spots. I was like, I'm going to go to this, this other spot. I did a morning sit and I tried glassing him traveling through the cattails was way too far away. There was a lot of fog in the morning, so I didn't see him at all. And so I was like, all right, I was glassing this area that he could be in. I was like, this is going to be sketchy. It's thin. It's near his bedding, but he could come to this area and feed on oaks all night and bed around and do whatever. And he would never cross where I want him to. So I was like, I need to be aggressive. I need to get close. And I knew that this tree I was going to be in was just, it was a clean dead tree. It was recent enough dead that it wasn't going to just be like creaking and cracking and all that. And I knew that 
if I could get up past one stick, I'd be able to set a stand and be quiet and I'd be 60 yards from embedded. And I was like, all right, this is my next shot, you know, and, and if not, we're stacking to area four and it's going to happen. So I'd go in there. I see the sign on the way in and I'm like, man, like that's a, that's a fresh rub. And I see the trails burnt down and I'm like, oh, like this is, this is setting up. So I slowly get my way in there. And as I'm going to set my first stick, I move a branch to try and get my first stick on that tree, just like a little whip it next to it. And um, it scraped on some bark and he was 25 yards closer than I thought. And I had never heard, I didn't get eyes on him, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, but it's an incredibly safe assumption seeing his tracks and fresh wet cattails from him splashing water on them and a fresh rub traveling in that direction. He was 25 yards closer and I've never heard a deer so loud, you know, break the cattails. I know he heard me. I know he didn't smell me. I know he didn't see me, but um, he jumped up and uh, he eventually stopped after a few bounds and then he continued on. And so yesterday I set up in the bedding that he was at um, I set up outside of the bedding he was at, but in the direction that he spooked to, and he didn't show up yesterday. So now I'm on four of four, and if he's not in this area, I don't have enough time to go like figure him out. Like, like I could with low confidence set on some more sign, um, but he would have to cross one of those major waterways or mudways like to to get to a new area and still be feeding on oaks. So I'm counting on him being a hermit, and that I'm counting on not actually walking in the three of those four bedding areas to to kind of give him confidence. And so I basically, because today is going to be spent, um, I've got two more sits. And so my next approach is to target him uh, a little further back than where I spooked him before. So exiting how he normally would instead of trying to watch him stand in his bed. And then I'm going to go back to that primo bedding area because I noticed that um, he actually tracked me to my access one time. I just absolutely massive tracks, but he tracked me to my access one time coming from that area. So I have a suspicion that he bedded near it or may have used it again. Um, and I'm thinking that if I can hunt one more time where I actually bumped him out of, and I have confidence that he was truthfully there last, uh, and that doesn't work out, I think he's going to go back to his, his go-to. Because I don't think he's just going to like forego oaks, forego his favorite areas, and completely relocate when all those oaks are dropping and all the other deer are in that area still. Um, and I think I'll have given it enough of a break since, you know, day one of targeting him to to make it work out. But if it doesn't happen, like, you know, again, it's back to the drawing board. Maybe I'll target some other deer. But um, it's just, it's such a beautiful challenge to be a part of, man. It's it's crazy. But that's kind of, I guess, how I'm generally going about this. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's an awesome challenge, man. And you're in the middle of it right now. And that's what we dream about. Like you're yeah. you're living the dream right now. So question real quick. So spot number four, you haven't hunted yet. You've got one solid hunt. So I hit it last night. You hit it last night. Okay. And he yeah. wasn't there. So last night, um, I set up watching where I believe he would enter from the bedding area. And, um, you know, Jake, I told you the story, but I like less than an hour before dark, probably like 45 minutes before dark, I watched cattails start twitching and, you know, they're not blowing in the breeze. They're, they're twitching from something hitting them on the bottom. I'm like, oh boy, like it's happening. <laughs> so I'm like, get the camera on, get the GoPro on, get the release clipped. And I watch them twitch and move closer, 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 you know, starting at 50 yards away. So like I got in there quiet, something's getting out of its bed 50 yards away. And, um, it starts to get a little bit thicker closer to the Island and they're just shaking. I'm like, I'm pretty much shaking like the cattails at this point. And so, um, I get ready to draw back and put tension on the, on the string. And, um, I see this giant body and I'm like, Oh God, like it's go time. And, uh, I realized that it's just a really big solitary nanny doe. And I was like, damn. And she walked the trail that she normally would, or the deer that would in that bedding area normally would started feeding. And I was in a completely dead bear tree hiding behind it. So like, you know, I had to dead to right. So whatever came out of that trail was, was very, very dead at that point. And she eventually worked around me 
uh, the way my wind was going, she couldn't get downwind to me. And um, she just kind of saw me, but I wasn't moving and she couldn't really make out what I was, but she knew it was different than what she normally sees in that tree. And so she just raised tail, trotted off. You know, I didn't move. I didn't go to look at her to see if she was running away because I knew she was still looking at me. And she eventually turned and kind of trotted back into that bedding area. So there's a good chance like he could have been there. And and more deer came from around there that night. But there there's a really good chance that he was probably there and decided not to come in that direction. Just because that doe clearly went to go feed in a very high destination, like high importance destination for food and decided it was too dangerous and came back after four minutes. So um, I don't think that, um, I, I think area four was the one I probably had, not the least, com- I had very high confidence in it, but the least of all four, I guess, you know, and, and that's still saying that I was fairly certain, like I'm certain one day out of the year, he does exactly what that doe did. You know, mm-hmm. I'm certain that he does this several times. And if any time it were to happen, it would be right around now. But I think the other areas are what he prefers. And I was hoping that my pressure on those other areas or what would concentrate him to do this thing that was a little bit out of the norm, um, you know, but that he would do in a last resort. You know, him not showing up, um, I could take it two ways. I could take it as I was wrong, or I could take it as confidence that he's still in the area, but he just decided not to do that on that day because that's not his favorite. And I could be confident that he's back in his favorite areas because, you know, he didn't show up in this one he usually selects over. Yeah, he could he could be more of a hermit than you think. And mm-hmm. bumping him day three in that third spot, maybe he is still there. You know, he could yeah. be like locked down to that. So with these beds that you found, the way you're targeting them, what was the wind that you had in your head when you found those spots that you wanted to target those locations on? Because we've had the weird east wind. So what's your ideal wind in that situation for you being able to hunt it and then for that deer being actually being in that bed so um in, in the marshes i gotta say so it completely changes hill country for me a uh, hill country is it's a science man it's specific the thermals are a huge play the timing of access is huge um but in the marshes man like they have a lot of especially these older deer have a lot of beds that they bet on on anyway so as far as a wind that he is there i'm a little bit less concerned and this is such a remote spot that he is not smelling access. I'm 100% certain of it. So like, I'm not looking for a wind that he's smelling the typical access and I loop around him. Cause that's, I mean, that's what I'll look for in many areas. I'll look for that in hill country, especially um, because I, you know, those bucks bed with that intelligence. But like in this area, like last night I had does underneath me and I was shining on them with my headlamp on strobe mode and I was blowing at them and making like snort wheezes and stuff. And they were just, they kept feeding. There was like, there's no shot. There's a person here. Like they, they just couldn't fathom that, you know, danger would be in that area. And so it literally took me like 15 minutes to get these does out of here without, you know, essentially jumping on them. <laughs> and um, so I think that just like, they aren't specifically monitoring pressure like now he probably will be because because i put pressure on him and he smelt me but um i'm not selecting for that reason but what i want in a wind is just anything that's not blowing into that bedding area and anything that doesn't have really the potential to kind of shift to it so like as i'm going in i draw lines in onyx to kind of get my scent cone so like at one far variation of the wind let's say i have a south wind the furthest variation east and the furthest variation west i point my map in that direction and i draw lines for my scent cone and i can kind of just like look at that and apply it to wherever i'm going to be set but i know that in that range i'm probably eventually going to be in danger you know and so the wind has been wrong for some of these spots like i had to set up south of him and the wind was south southeast and there's times that i've had to set up um in spots where I just don't want that wind going north 
and where I don't want that wind going east and I've I'm, or west and I don't get that east and I keep getting that east wind. Sorry. Um, so we're getting those odd east winds and I just don't want it going in that direction. And so I've kind of used that a little bit to stack where I sit, like to to kind of go through an order of operations, kind of planned where that wind is. But honestly, if the wind is wrong, anything besides strong and dead wrong, I still hunt it, like because because I have to. And honestly, I have to, if I bump him out of this area and he smells me, like I'm going to lay eyes on him and that would be freaking awesome. Um, you know, I'd be, I'd be super hyped. And honestly, if I lay eyes on him and I bump him four hours before dark, I probably have a pretty good scenario for where he's going to go to. And I could probably get a pretty good reset on him. Um, but you know, I haven't bumped him like that. I haven't bumped him to the point where I've seen him. And so, you know, I'm kind of taking an approach that Ethan did, and, and I've noticed this and I've kind of utilized it in the marsh this year, but staying extremely low, if not laying down when that wind's in the wrong way. And hey, they're only moving that last 30 minutes of light, no matter how crazy that food source is, no matter how many deer move beforehand. And so I'm just, you know, getting up in that tree or sitting really low um, when he's going to move and when he's going to stand and when he's going to get out of that area. And a lot of these areas, I can actually see where he's going to enter the area. You know, I'll see the cover he's coming from in the area where I'll have a shot. I can see it just fine from the ground. So like, you know, I'll sit there, I'll be ready, but I know when to get in the tree. I know when he's probably going to show up. And I, and I have yet to be wrong about that with any of the deer, but, um, just cause that wind's kind of off, I can't let it deter me. Um, unless, like I said, it's strong, consistent wind, you know, then I know it's just going to be pouring into his area. I don't even hunt it. You know, I, I select for a different area then. Um, but I've been fortunate that he's exiting certain bedding in different directions where multiple winds work. So I can actually shift and I can actually phase this where, you know, if I'm scouting for the predominant wind out here, which is west, and he's in beds that only work for west winds, and I'm SOL for all of the four spots if I'm not getting that west wind or, you know, the wind that works out. And so, yeah, I mean, to put it this way, the first that I had, you know, you look at the forecast and like, say you, you want anything but a south wind, you get that south wind. Like, damn it. Like, like this sucks. Mm-hmm. And especially in a marsh, talking different than the hills, because the hills, you have thermals in play. Sometimes you need that wind, period. Like you need it. You can't get by without it because your thermals are going to pull in the wrong direction without it. Um, and you're not going to be able to get away with it. But but in the marshes, um, if you have a five mile hour wind, four mile hour wind, like something less than five, that's pretty much dead in a lot of these areas, especially if you're talking within cattails. And I found that what I want on those really low winds is I want where he's sitting or where I am to have enough cover that if I'm on the ground, there's not much of my wind actually escaping that area. So sometimes it's me sitting in cattails. Sometimes it's him within a wall of cattails and a wall of brush. And I know that I'm standing on the ground, like my scent's going probably three feet and dying down, especially because there's water everywhere. Thermals get sucked down in the after. Anywhere there's water like that around here right now, because the air is so hot. Um, I'm just having a lot of my scent just kind of die. And so I have not scent bumped him at all. Like I've been super aggressive. I've hunted on winds that are probably wrong and um, I've gone in really slow and I have yet to have him smell me unless he tracked me out. So it's hard because, you know, it goes against everything I did in the hill country to like have a directly wrong wind and, and still hunt it. But I'm relying on that wind speed being very low. I'm relying on my timing of getting in the tree and um, it has yet to kind of fail me. I'm sure it will, you know, eventually. But if I need to make that sit, I'm not just going to sit on my couch and be like, well, wind was kind of wrong today. You know, I have no idea whether I could have got away with it, but I'm not taking that risk. Unfortunately, just not the situation I'm in right now. Yeah. So when you're drawing that scent cone, you talked about drawing like that triangle of danger. What is roughly the percent error of the degrees of danger of that scent cone? Like, let's say that you have a south wind and he's bedded to your northeast and you're like, well, Mm -hmm. you know, if he, if it's 15 degrees out of whack, 
I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. But what is your typical percent error on those winds in the marsh? Yeah, it's hard to put like a, a degree range on it, but that cone itself is usually anywhere from 30 to 45 degrees. If I'm to mark, you know, the extremes of the wind, it's usually 30 to 45 degrees. And, you know, again, people, you got to understand that like this is a very odd situation and a severe situation. So this is why I'm being so aggressive in this manner. If you guys are after a giant buck and you know where he's at and you know other people aren't getting to him, I would be much more patient. But that's that's not what's going on. So there have been times where I believe a small gust could probably touch him, like could probably hit him. Um, and it's just the reality of the trees I have to pick in the marsh. Like, you know, if I was able to shift over 30 yards, 100% would do it. And I don't care if that tree's ugly. I don't care if I only have one shooting lane compared to 20. Like, that's what I would have to do in that situation. Unfortunately, there are not many trees that set up good when you're surrounded by cattails or where you're on these oak islands with a lot of swamp oaks that have tree like branches all the way down to the bottom. You know, you can't be loud, obviously, setting up 60 yards from his bed. And so, um, un- unfortunately, there have been times where I've had to set where if I got that extreme, I, you know, I might get a little bit of my wind in on them. Um, but that's just a risk. Like I kind of have to take at this point. Um, there's a lot of cameras in this area too. Like it's Southeast from Wisconsin. There's a lot of cameras anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm not really narrowing it down much to say that. Um, but the plus side of that is I did a lot of spring scouting, even though I got the information I wanted in the spring, I did a lot of summer scouting. And so I scouted this area like crazy. And I watched as other people scouted it. I watched a lot of cameras come in this area, um, as well as every other property I hit. You know, a lot of cameras coming up in this area. And so I don't know when those people are checking them. I don't know if they're hunting at all. I, I'm assuming they probably got this buck on camera if they had cell cams. So what I'm doing is I'm kind of strategically avoiding those cameras, but I will, I don't want them to see who I am, but I will put my, I'll put a thumbs up in front of it. I'll walk from behind that camera and I actually give them a thumbs up. So like, you know, if I like shift around their camera, put my hands in front of them, they're like, oh, some dude's trying to steal my camera. They're going to come in and check it, you know? But I'm assuming that a person with a cell camera that sees like someone, obviously a person was there giving them a thumbs up. It's probably like, dang, that jerk is freaking hunting this spot. It's blown up. And I just don't want them to like, I don't want them to come in here. Like I, I don't want them to to start pursuing this deer in this area. I want them to think it's blown up. I want them to assume that he's not a hermit and he's going to shift hundreds of yards when all the evidence I've gained through scouting and pictures are showing me that he's probably actually not going to shift. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of little little things I'm keying on, but that's actually something I'm doing to try and keep the pressure down a tiny bit. Um, because I know if someone else gets in here and they don't, you know, say I'm trying to hunt bed two and they just went through bed two, I'm screwing myself out of potentially every single opportunity I have left to get this deer because I have so few. Um, so, so it's just such a critical thing. I'm doing pretty much everything I can to try and decrease that. So back to these sits real quick. They've all been afternoon sits, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So run me through, uh, like time frames of when you're, I'm, I'm still going to not being busted by this deer and the wind and everything. And my head's still there because that's what I deal with all the time. So time frame as far as like when you're accessing into the tree, what time you want to be in the tree, where's your head at there? Okay. So I want, I'm, I'm, in, I'm so limited by situation here. Um, so, so I'm going to answer as if, if you have a choice, this is what I think you should probably be doing. So we've already covered like, you know, the approach and how that changes. Um, but if I had a choice, I would want to be in the tree around two o'clock. Um, I think that there's some feeding that goes on, especially because they can feed in their beds. Just the threat of him standing up and looking and roaming five feet, five yards outside of his area, that changes a lot of how I would approach. And the likelihood of me getting busted coming in there dramatically increases because I'm on, I'm just in a pinpoint bed, you know? And so, I mean, you saw like he was 20 yards, 25 yards off and it 
completely change the outcome of that sit, you know? So like, you know, if he's five yards away and he's standing up and browsing, that's a tough, tough situation. And so, cause I know he's targeting, targeting him on oaks. I'm getting a lot of deer and other deer in the area feeding up and moving till six. And I know that does in this area and a lot of other areas are feeding till nine, 10 o'clock sometimes. And so I know that bumping, bumping the subordinate deer, bumping his satellite bedding is going to bump him too. And I'm not going to even know those deer spooked because, you know, I'm going to bust it through cattails quarter mile away. And those deer are just going to create a chain reaction on the line that gets him up. So I don't want those other deer to be standing, but I know where those deer are bedded because I scouted the hell out of this area. So I know how to avoid those beds so long as they're bedded. So what I would like to do is dodge, make sure they're back in their beds. I think the bucks get back to bed a little earlier. So their time to get up and stretch is sometimes around noon. Sometimes they feed, they poop, do whatever. I don't want to catch them during that. I want to kind of catch during that lull at two o'clock. I think they're a little bit less likely to be moving throughout the area. And I want to, when I get close, from the time I kind of enter this core or the area that I think he could scent, he could detect me from the very furthest reaches of where he's going to reach in daylight, I slow way the hell down. And I want it to take an hour from the time I reach a detectable range to the time I'm set in my tree at least. And so I would, if I could, get in there at two, be set around three, three thirty. Um, that's what I would really like. Although I'm seeing movement so late, it's like the thing where you you're sitting on an oak ridge and you know, from the direction of that bedding area, you hear like and it's like a pattern, and you're like, Oh boy, like he just stood up. You're like, Oh, this is happening. You get your bow ready, you get your camera going, you, you know, you're ready to go. And then um, you know, a minute passes and you're like, Okay, well, he's probably just chilling there for a little bit. Five minutes pass and you're like, I don't know what's going on. Like ten minutes pass, you're hearing squirrels moving, you're like, Maybe that was a squirrel. Like maybe I'm just like too excited for this. And then twenty minutes passes, an hour passes, and you might even forget about it. So like I want that to be the case. Because on these days that I have to sit a risky wind and it's really low, it is quiet, you know? So I'm not only taking my time, but I want whatever I potentially messed up on to be forgiven and forgotten. And just kind of like the nature of these marshes too, is like these bucks don't spook until you're right on top of them. And that's kind of what keeps them alive, like during gun drives and stuff. Like if they, if they jump when you were even 40 yards away, making a lot of racket, they would probably get shot like every rifle season out here. Mm -hmm. So where in hill country, they can just slip over the hill from 200 yards away if you're being loud and they can have a bunch of other areas to go or they can run a long ways and just get away from you. There's not awesome escape routes from a lot of these beds. There's not escape routes where he can get away and know that I didn't detect him unless, you know, he's miraculously hearing extremely far. And so I know that there's probably a case of that buck heard me and he wanted to spook, but he knew he'd be in danger if he did. And I'm just giving him the time to recover from that. You know, and I know eventually like he's going to have to leave that bed. But as long as I don't get so close and so loud that he's sure it's imminent danger, then I know there's a chance that, you know, he takes that five steps outside of that bed that I need him to, to kill him. Um, but what I have to do <laughs> is I have to work till 3.34 o'clock and I have to pick up my kayak during my lunch break or pick up my waders during my lunch break and I have to take a direct route and race out there. And so that slowdown happens still, but I just push it a little bit closer to that period when he may be getting up or the does may be filtering out than I want to. Um, and, and all that all those things play into the aggressiveness of my approach, where I'm setting compared to where I can. You know, sometimes I'll, um, you know, I know my boss doesn't listen to these podcasts, but um, sometimes I'll tell my boss, like, hey, boss man, like there's a there's a critical pour going on right now. Like I got to watch this part get set and I got to watch this metal get poured. You know, I got to be in here at three in the morning. So like, I'm just going to probably leave work two hours early if I get up, you know, get in before my shift by three hours. Uh, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I understand like quality of your products. And, you know, I do all my work. I stay a little bit longer, but get out in the woods a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I can't pull those all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, 
I pull in in those critical situations where I need that extra hour or two. I love it, man. I'm I'm very similar. Uh, most days, I like to be accessing the woods, let's say 1230 to 1 o'clock, and I like to hit the core area about 2 p.m., and then I like to mm-hmm. be in the tree at about 4, 330, yeah. 4 o'clock. So it's, you know, that core area is, let's say, sub 250 in most cases, so I really like to close that last 250 yards and then mm-hmm. be set up in like two and a half hours, roughly. That that seems, and that's my kill sets. That's pretty typical. So so we're very similar there, man. Um, the other question I had for you too is with the wind. Do you think that have you have you experienced these mature bucks moving more when the wind is conducive for them being able to monitor danger all day? Is that mm-hmm. something you're seeing as well? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's. So there's there's two parts to it. So when it's dead silent out, they I think they're kind of weary of how much noise they make. Like I think so too. So yeah. So like if I'm if I'm to pick an optimal situa- situation for a buck to be moving, it's he's bedding strategically, so the wind provides him an advantage. Vast majority of the time, sometimes it's not monitoring pressure, but sometimes it's other deer. Um, but but I believe that they're bedding with that advantage if if they can, you know. And when he's a hermit and he's got four beds in a in a general area. Um, it's pretty easy for him to move that 200 yards where if he's relocating to an entire different side of a ridge system, sometimes that's harder for a buck to do. Um, but when this wind is, you know, less swirly than hill country, more consistent, they, for them to want to move a eight to 10 mile an hour wind, eight to 12 in, from a certain direction, consistent, not super gusty. So random noises are coming from everywhere. Um, but so they can keep an accurate monitor on where they want to go in the afternoon. Yeah, they move more. You know, they get up. Um, they still have extreme caution. Every single time I've seen a buck about to clear cattails, like this is, it's crazy how consistent this is across the board. I've even have it with uh, less mature bucks getting up out of their beds in the cattails, but it's just, just decrease these times a bit. But they get up 45 minutes to 30 minutes before daylight is, before shooting time closes. Um, you hear them get up. And you're like, oh boy, like that's the bed, that's the deer. And you get really hyped. And then five minutes passes and you don't hear anything at all, like dead silent. And it's literally just them standing in their bed. Like they just get up, they stand in their bed. They don't even browse. A lot of them I've seen rub willow brush, but they won't even do that for the first five minutes. And you, to the point where you're like, dang, like that, that wasn't the deer or that was just birds spazzing out by the cats over there. And, um, and so that five minutes passes and then they take a couple steps they browse on the willow brush around them. They start rubbing a little bit and you hear like probably a minute's worth of noise. And it's just crazy. I've had this happen so many times this year already. But, um, and then that, that little period of them moving around for a minute passes. And then sometimes it's 20 minutes and, and sometimes it's a pretty long time, but, uh, the more mature deer, at least 15 minutes. And then they start walking down that trail. And once they start walking, they don't stop. Like if it's through cattails and they're rubbing their antlers on it, they can't hear anything anyways. You know, it's super loud around them. They know they're making noise. And they start moving and they don't stop till they reach the edge of that cattails or transition and cover. And then they sit with just their head poking within that last row of cattails like a deer would in corn. And they sit there and they turn their heads and they turn their heads and they look all around. They listen. They look, listen, look, listen, look, listen. They don't give you a damn shot. And, um, and, uh, they smell everything they can, and then they finally commit to those last few steps, and now they're into the food source, and you know they're keeping their monitor, but they're transitioning towards their feeding. Um, and that's like to a T what has happened so many times with so many different bucks this year. Um, and I think the reason they stand up 
and they take those short periods of time to just listen is because they know they're loud. Like they know it makes a lot of sound, especially with the cattails dying early this year in the drought. Um, they're just taking their freaking time and they're waiting to see if their movement caused a predator or other deer or something to get up in their area that they possibly couldn't keep a monitor on. So especially on those really quiet days, I think they're super weary of the noise that they're making. But once they start committing to that travel direction, they know they need to just do it. You know, they know they need to make um, anything short of other deer blowing and going back past them. They kind of don't really stop for until they reach that transition and cover. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, the wind conditions they like to move on is that consistent enough wind that they can smell certain areas, um, but it's not so loud that they can't hear anything. And they don't like moving in very, very low, but consistent winds because one, they don't gain a lot from, you know, five miles an hour of wind when they have to bed in a wall of cattails sometimes. So they're not smelling outside of that wall that nothing really would be. And they also make a lot of noise when they stand up and they don't really like giving away their position so much. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are these deer, especially the mature bucks out there in the marsh, are they using the same entry and exit trail? And where my head's at with this one is say that you hunt a spot, you hunt spot one, right? Well, mm-hmm. even though you were in there and you left scent on the ground and, you know, on the tree and everything, well, is he using a different entry trail to where you could be like, all right, well, he wasn't here, so I really didn't induce any pressure on that system yet? Or is he coming by your tracks and then going back to bed where he smells where you were? Um, so I think if I touch the bed, like he's certainly going to smell, you know, me if he, if he uses those beds. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, so like most of the time, so deer in general in the marsh, typically one to two exits, right? So one to two exits, they use the same trails to either enter or exit. Sometimes they do a big loop and they'll exit one way, enter the other. Um, a lot of these mature buck beds are either one and out, and that's in the really remote things where they have perfect, you know, dangers coming from this 90 degrees. I just got to monitor this 90 degrees. It's either one and out. Um, so they monitor that 90 degrees all day. They know that danger's not there in the afternoons and they can feel free to exit in that direction. So that is the common one. And then the other is like four points of exit. And so they can choose, they'll put themselves with the conditions or the areas they want to go all around them. And they can choose to exit to any one of those. So like right now it's oaks. They like being in an area that's surrounded by oaks, but isolated. So like um, they don't like being an isolated cover, but with trees, by the way, which, you know, a lot of guys key on, it's because there's a lot of pressure here. Like an area that has your standard willow with a root ball or your your cottonwood with a root ball, they're just not on it yeah. here because they're all caught up. Um, so they're they're selecting to adjust often downwind of that willow or cottonwood, um, but but if they can't control it, not always. And usually in willow brush or usually in like a shrub tree, uh, something you can't set up near. And then from those, they'll spiral out like spokes in a wheel. And I mean, you can literally see it on a map. Um, and, and that's what's hard about the marsh is like you, a lot of people just know where the deer's at. A lot of people know the directions they travel and what trails they use. But whether they think they can hunt it is what makes a difference. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess to answer your question a little better here, um, I think that I'm in such close proximity to his bed. And because I'm on the edge of oaks or on the edge of a food source where they just meander around like crazy. I think there's a really low probability that he's not knowing I'm there, even if I'm staying off him. It's just kind of the nature of how freaking close I need to get. You know, if if he's in, so for example, the first day, it was one of those 90 degree situations, exit from one entry, from one area. Um, let's say he finds another way to exit. Well, that other way is still within a 90 degree window of where I was sitting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's going to move 100 yards east, west, north, south, all throughout the night because he's feeding on this small area for five hours straight. Oh, it's 
sitting there chewing his cud and then getting up and feeding again and then going back to bed. So like I have high confidence he's going to smell me. And more importantly, I want him to. Like I I think I would waste a lot of time if I sat in an area, thought he had, you know, realized my pressure and bumped away from it. And he just didn't care. And he's going to go back and use that area again. So now my other three of those four sits are in areas that I shouldn't be sitting, you know, and I'm not stacking them truthfully anymore because, you know, let's say I go sit area two and then three and then four. And then I go back to one. If he was in one the whole time, now he can go to two, three or four and my sign's all old there. So like, so I'm not stacking him. I actually want him to, to an extent, like if I, if I know one of the sits is going to pressure him and he's going to detect me, I want him to get the heck out of there. I don't want that bed to be an option for at least until I rotate back to it. You know, I'm not going in there and making my own rub and peeing in his, in his bed or something like that. Yeah. But, um, I'll put my boot prints in there. You know, he knows I'm there, but, um, I, I don't think it's enough to really blow him out of the area just from the way that I believe this buck is from the sign he's lying down. When he, like, let's say he detects you. He didn't come in that night. You hunted spot one. He comes in to spot one in the morning to bed down. He detects that you were there in his bed. He smells, you, you know, you peed in his bed, boot tracks all <laughs> over the place. Are all of the beds that you have located in close enough proximity to where he can make that shift before daylight? Okay. So yes. that's, yeah. Okay. So that was the one thing that I was thinking in my head, like the deer I'm after, when I bump him, he has like areas he prefers, but I don't know if he would feel comfortable enough after detecting me that morning to be able to make it to one of those other spots. You know, some of these spots are up to like a mile. Yes. And this is predicated and and that's the hard part too. But keep in mind, I'm putting a pretty good amount of faith in that his hooves weren't wet, his hooves weren't full of of, uh, mud. And I got a picture actually of another guy scouting this area in between like the appearances I found to him on my SD cams and my cell cams. Um, so I know that he stayed in this area and he made a shift, but his hooves weren't wet when he made that shift. His hooves weren't full of mud when he made that shift. So that's part of the hermit mentality. Um, and uh, I just, I know that he would have to shift and cross something that would certainly get him, you know, wet or his hooves full of mud eventually to relocate to another area. And I'm hoping that he just doesn't want to do that. I know that this area sets up really well for a deer to survive in. I know it while people went out here in the summer and the spring to go set cameras. I know they're not willing to do that necessarily to hunt or just check the cameras now. Um, um, at least it's it's more rare. Um, so I, I'm counting on him in really loving this area, but the nature of it, if, if I'm counting on him, if I'm calling it a given that he's not going to cross a major waterway or a mud flat or something like that, um, or just tromp through a giant sea of cattails for a mile. If I'm counting on that, then all the areas that I believe he could be in are within close enough proximity that he can just shift. Um, but if I am wrong about that, he could be 500 yards away and have crossed a river right now and now he's there. Yeah. But if I go ahead and experiment around with with hunting those spots that he could or could not have shifted to, I'm learning less about the sign and how it changes day to day in the area I want to target. And so I know he's going to shift anyway after these oaks go out of phase. And so that's when I'm, you know, that's when I'm picking him up on these other areas. Uh, that's when I, the cameras I've started to redisperse are going to start to catch him. Um, but if I count on that now, I don't get to see, okay, what rubs were made between when I was last year, what tracks were made, or, um, you know, I don't get to, I, I draw areas in Onyx that I've hit and draw areas where my scent has gone and, and pooled, essentially, like if it's there for like a second, I don't mark it. I mark areas that I think I burnt up. And then it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a, like a red, like green, yellow, scale you know so if i was there yesterday it's red you know if i was there uh two days ago it's yellow green starting to get back in there and then if i don't have an area marked over that i consider it the highest potential for him to be back in so um what i want is those areas to start to come back in 
Um, but yeah, they're all in close enough proximity that he can shift one to the next. I just don't want him to get insane because he's going through this carousel now. I want to just keep putting him where I want him <laughs> and, yeah. and hope he's not making those major shifts quite yet. It's a tough thing, man. The monitoring of sign both in the areas that you want to target him and then areas that are further out. I, I deal with the same thing. I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but for me, it's hey, I don't want to be in the woods targeting that deer between 7 a.m. and noon. So what I do on those days that I have off and I can go out all day is, okay, I'm going to target him in this spot. But in the morning, I'm going to go to a totally like one of the places you don't expect him. And I'm going to go, I'm going to basically venture in there every couple of days and monitor the sign because it's the exact same Mm -hmm. thing you're talking about internally in his core area. For me, it's I'm monitoring that sign on the external areas. I'm like, hey, nothing's been hit here. Nothing's been hit here. Well, the third time I go in there, I'm like, man, that's a big rub. And that was made in the last, I was here two days ago. So Mm -hmm. did he make this rub? Is he back over here? And then if I go have that sit that night and I don't see anything, I'm like, okay, he shifted on me. And I, I'm gone. You know what I mean? So I think we're doing pretty much the same thing, man. It was really cool to pick your brain and... I know that some of those questions were probably redundant, but I was really trying to just no, dig no. everything out. And I think that I think that uh, eventually we'll get to listen to this and be like, hey, there's a lot of really good tidbits here. Um, so the last thing before we hop off today's show is say that you do not catch up with that deer this week. What is your mentality going into, you know, after the cold front when you can hunt next week again? Um it's going to be, it's going to be one, I need to make sure that those oaks are actually stopping when I, when I think they are. Um, and, and I, like I said, I've got other really good books showing up. So it's going to be a consideration of, are those oaks done? You know, is he truthfully done with this phase? Cause otherwise I could have just unpressured him for a whole weekend and these oaks are still dropping or there's residuals on the ground. I could be in a really good spot. Like I could have stacked them right back to where I would be, but, um, it, it's going to be monitoring the outside areas uh an assessment of how likely i am to get back on him and then it's either going to be stage hunting him down again or narrowing down his area through through hunts uh mostly observing on the way into those scouting on the way in not hanging and hoping but but you know really hanging and hunting and then considering the likelihood of me getting on him if it's very low i'm gonna start to shift to other deer um but it it kind of delves into like the mentality that i've had to kind of adopt and uh, before I was so worried about failing and whether I was doing something wrong, I just realized that in a situation where you're chasing a deer like this and you have to be balls to the wall, um, you have to become okay with failing and you have to be willing to do absolutely everything perfect and be in this setup that would work great. And it was doomed from the start. Like he was never there. You have to be perfectly fine with that, you know, and you have to just take it for what it is. You can't also be that guy that gives himself a sense of false confidence and been like, oh, if this wouldn't happen, like he would, he would have been there. Like you have to be fine with being wrong because if you just start to doubt yourself and you have a problem with being wrong, you're only just going to reduce your confidence and worsen all your other setup. So it's like, whether you're right or wrong is irrelevant because your next guess is going to be the one, you know? And um, one of my old coaches had a saying, it's win or lose, learn and improve. So like, no matter what's happening, I'm going to learn some more things. I'm going to improve upon my approach. I'm going to figure out this deer. I'm going to get it done. And if it's not realistic for me to get on this deer in the moment, I'm going to go on to one of the other great deer I have and, you know, resume with that confidence and get it done on him. Heck yeah, man. That's, uh, that's awesome. That reminded me of, I did a podcast with, I've done a bunch of them with Ethan, but the podcast I did with Ethan Eskew, where I asked him about his confidence going into season before he killed. (laughs) And all he told me is he's like, he's like, Jake, he's like, I don't want to speak in confidence, but I'm just going to go out there, win or lose. I'm going to, I'm going to run the playbook. And I've taken that same mentality this year of just level-headedness, you know, don't get too low, don't get too high, just run the playbook and stick to your game plan. If it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, you're going to learn a lot this season and you'll be better next year. 
hundred percent. Yeah. Well, cool, man. This has been an awesome show. Appreciate you coming on again. I know I've, this Thank is, you. I think our, our third episode, right? So something like that. Yeah. Hopefully we're is... at about 10 by the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to have like four podcasts of both of us just screaming for like an hour straight because we both shot our target bucks. So I hope I'm, people will get to endure that. <laughs> I'm praying for that one. Hopefully that happens. But hey, man, where can everybody find out more about you? Um, You can uh, you can follow my YouTube channel, The Wild Calling. Uh, we're Wild Calling Outdoors on Instagram, uh, The Wild Calling on Facebook. Uh, Instagram and Facebook are kind of just vehicles for me to give you tidbit reminders of where I'm at and when videos are releasing. But the bulk of everything is going to happen on YouTube. And so, uh, you know, you can see my Nebraska hunts that Jake talked about on there and, and all sorts of other stuff, just how I actually do this approach if you want to see it in video. Sounds good, man. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. All right, everybody, that is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you could, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next time. Oh,